0: Fantastic. Thank you for that. Uh, and thank you, Beth, for your um, encouragement. Um, that actually sounds like a wonderfully hospitable interaction. Uh, as you were mentioning, Karen Armstrong's, hist- I'm presuming that was Karen Armstrong's history of God. Um, yes, it was. Yes. Uh, uh, Karen uh, is someone who can inspire a degree of... Uh, reaction as you read her um, but um, but that sounds like a wonderful way that you've engaged and um, the kind of generous conversation in which I think the gospel can actually shine forth in a beautiful way uh, this talk will be a little shorter uh, but it tries to focus on the the ideas of faithful presence and faithful witness which I will hopefully unpack for you A number of years ago, I was introduced to a book by a Christian sociologist by the name of James Davison Hunter, and he wrote a book called To Change the World, Uh, The Irony, Tragedy and Possibility of Christianity in the Late Modern World. Now, in that book, Hunter, who's a North American, pointed out that if you go to the mission statement of most Christian churches or parachurch institutions or Christian colleges, Everybody says they want to change the world, they want to change the culture and so our mission statements are filled with this language of world changes and transforming the culture and being agents of renewal. And there's so much that's well intentioned about this, but there are plenty of dangers that Hunter points out has happened historically. Uh, One of them is he points out as a sociologist that most people who talk about changing the culture don't understand the processes of culture change very well and that he as a sociologist tries to help unpack actually how culture change works. But one of the big things he tries to say to Christians is he says that the focus on results has come at the expense of faithfulness. So that because there is a desire to change the world, because there is a desire to change the culture, because there is a desire to have an impact, there is an easy pragmatism that comes in and a politicization sometimes that comes in, where we trade influence for faithfulness. And uh, what what it really comes down to is that we tried to change the world, but in an uh, for Christ. Sorry, I'll say that again. We tried to change the world for Christ, but in an unchrist-like manner. So this is the idea of we need to get something done, but the way of Jesus won't get the job done. So if you like, we'll use the world's methods in order to achieve Jesus's goals for him. And he points out we're tempted to do this in, a poli- in politics, and I would suggest we're even tempted to do this in evangelism at times. Our Hunter's counterproposal is to talk about something that he calls faithful presence. Now, faithful presence is the idea that instead of focusing on changing the world, what we should simply do is pursue shalom, which is a a biblical word, a Hebrew word for uh, the world working the way it should work. Creation in right uh, relationship with God and and people in right relationship with each other and everything working harmoniously. We should pursue shalom and then just let God take care of the results. So in Hunter's counterproposal, he says your job is to be faithful to God and to faithfully do your job wherever you are located and you should be witnessing and working for a just world and contributing to the common good from where you are and let the results take care of themselves. That is up to God. Now Hunter's label of faithful presence is actually, I think, a helpful and useful label because it does prioritize the need that we cannot lose our faithfulness in any of our strategies. But I'm going to apply it in some ways that Hunter probably might not, but we do share a concern that as we exalt Christ, it's Christ-likeness that must permeate everything we do. That we cannot actually honor Christ by embracing unChrist-like behavior and ways. So I want to work through some ways that faithful presence might work out for us who are in the academy and the ways that that might transform the way that we see our roles and our vocations within the world. Where is God calling us to faithful presence? And the first thing I want to say is that God is calling us to faithful presence in the workplace There is a tendency in Christian circles, it's certainly been challenged in the last decade or so, but there is a tendency in Christian circles to think that God primarily works in only a select number of locations. Uh, So the obvious one is, unless you're in paid ministry, uh, you're not really doing God's work. Uh, Sometimes we extend that out so that the proportion of Christians who are in education or the proportion of Christians who are in nursing is quite large because we can see the ways that that's doing God's work. Uh, But the real challenge is trying to work out how do we encourage people to be a faithful presence in every domain? How do we encourage them to be a faithful presence in politics, in banking, in art? There's a need to constantly be saying that people need to be formed for discipleship in every domain. Uh, There is a helpful corrective that, that, that has happened in the last decade or so. And that's been great to see. But I love the comment by the theologian Amy Sherman, where she talks about we've got to teach people to bloom where you are planted, to bloom where you are planted. That is, wherever you're located, how can you be faithfully present and working for God's kingdom vision within that particular context? To do that requires us to have a robust theology of creation, as well as a robust theology of redemption. And I'll just draw upon an insight that was first given to me by the American thinker, Andy Crouch, which is the Bible doesn't start at Genesis 3. So we often talk about the gospel and talk about the things of God, mostly in the ways that it deals with the sin problem. That is to say, human sin is the presenting cause and Christ is the answer which is correct that human sin is the cause of why we need redemption, but the Bible itself doesn't start at Genesis 3. That's not the first bit of the story. The first bit of the story is Genesis 1 and 2, where there's a creation vision unveiled for what the creation is meant to be and what human beings are meant to be. And so if you only know that the only thing that matters is dealing with sin, then it's very difficult to understand what my, my job in Christ to 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 perform in the workplace but in fact what we realize is if we go back to those early chapters of genesis that the bible begins with a cultural mandate a cultural mandate which is that we are called to make something of the world that is the dominion call or the call to work and take care of the garden uh, god has made a world where he has placed his image bearers To not simply preserve the world or touch nothing, but rather to make something of the world, to cultivate it for his glory and for the benefit of others. God has given us a job to do. And so you see in the scriptures that God made the creation, but he invites us to name most of it. Uh, God is quite clearly good enough at naming lots of things. That's what he does for most of Genesis chapter one. But in Genesis chapter two, he invites Adam to the naming of the world to classify to understand to call it what you need to call it uh, to give you the job of modern science which is partly to classify what we are encountering within the world uh, i like to say to my art students that i used to as in i used to teach performing artists i say god gave us language but he invites human beings to make poetry and god gave us sound but he invites human beings to make music and so part of being faithfully present is living out our vocation as god's image bearers bringing order out of chaos in god's beautiful and now broken world but we are still to do that we are still to reflect our creator by being what tolkien called sub creators who who in conscious imitation of god's own bringing order out of chaos we too follow as his image bearers in bringing Uh, order out of chaos and this is I believe at the core of how we love God and also how we love others that our work glorifies our creator but it also is one of the principal means that God has ordained by which we can bless and love others every morning I am the recipient of a thousand blessings from other people from the roads that have been built for me the bread that has been baked for me Okay, the the entertainment that has been manufactured for me, some of it might be regarded as a curse, but a lot of it is a blessing. A lot of it is I live off the gifts of others. And so, too, I need to think through how does my work contribute to the well-being of others? How do I express my love for others through the work that I perform? This leads me to think about something that Dorothy Sayers, the great Dorothy Sayers, once wrote in an essay called Why Work? Uh, and I apologise. This will be small print on your screen. Uh, but she she says, uh, in nothing has the church, uh, sorry, I've just missed. It, so lost her hold on reality as in her failure to understand and respect the secular vocation. She's just meaning worldly vocation there. She has allowed work and religion to become separate departments, and is astonished to find that as a result, the secular work of the world is turned to purely selfish and destructive ends and that the greater part of the world's intelligent workers have become irreligious, or at least uninterested in religion. But is it astonishing? How can anyone remain interested in a religion which seems to have no concern with nine-tenths of his life? The church's approach to an intelligent carpenter is usually confined to exhorting him not to be drunk and disorderly in his leisure hours, and to come to church on Sundays. What the church should be telling him is this, that the very first demand that his religion makes upon him is that he should make good tables. Now, that's a challenging thought, but it's the thought that our work matters to God and it matters to other people and that there is something deeply godly about doing the right work well, not only to bring glory to God, but also for the sake of others. It's part of faithful presence within the world. Therefore, the various tasks that you're doing within the world whether they be in the sciences, the humanities, in the social sciences, in the fields of business and economics and education and all those kinds of things, this is work that matters. And it matters that you do your job well in order to bring glory to God and for the blessing of others. To deepen that concept a little, let me then talk about what I call faithful presence through culture care. Faithful presence through culture care we're probably familiar with the idea from Genesis of creation care, which is the idea of stewarding the earth and caring for it in such a way that it's not destroyed, but that it flourishes, that it grows and unveils its produce and its, and it, and it, and its works in ways that are life-giving rather than life-destroying. So we know that there is a mandate upon Christians and all humanity to care for the creation. But the New York artist Marco Fujimura brought out a book a number of years ago called culture care and culture care tries to apply the idea of stewardship not only to the natural world but also to the cultivated culture that the the cultural world that we have created that we need to care for it and steward it he talks about the fact that many resemble what one might expect that is these principles resemble what one might expect uh, when applying the principles of environmental stewardship, known in some circles as creation care, to cultural stewardship. I am assuming that efforts to restore the cultural environment are good and noble and that our efforts will benefit the next generation. Uh, What Fujimura is trying to point out is that Christians are often good at lamenting the culture. We're often good at decrying the fragmentation of the culture or the debauching of the culture Or the destruction of the cultural fabric Uh, but less of us are actually good at caring for the culture and stewarding the culture in such a way that it becomes an environment for the common good so if we don't like the way that people talk and debate in our culture the way we do politics or the way we build suburbs or the way we educate or the way we do health policy part of a Christian's duty is to steward the culture for the sake of human flourishing. Uh, in the same way that we steward the earth so that good things will grow, we want to care for the culture so that good things will grow. Uh, I like to put it this way, and and I've said this to many an audience over the years. Culture making is actually inevitable. Will you leave a scar or a legacy? So everything we do in the world, whether we're setting up a church. Uh, whether we're building an educational curriculum, uh, whether we're crafting policies for government, we're always making culture. Culture Culture-making is inevitable. We will leave an impact upon this world. The only question is, will you leave a scar or a legacy? Uh, Because the people who talk about the fact that culture-making doesn't matter uh, still make culture, they just probably make it badly. They make it in ways that ultimately become harmful and they don't allow people to flourish. So faithful culture, sorry, faithful presence through um, the workplace, faithful presence through crafting uh, culture care strategies, uh, but at the same time, I want to also encourage us to faithful presence through being a contrast community. Now, one of the things that animates what I've just been talking about, about the workplace and culture care is that many people get tired of being told that the only place for Christian discipleship is Bible studies or Bible reading or evangelism or attending your church in small group. And so people actually do get excited when you tell them that all of life can be lived for Christ, that your work can be a site for living out your allegiance to Christ. But what happens is it becomes really easy. Someone goes off and read Tim Keller's Every Good Endeavor And then all of a sudden, the pendulum swings and people become totally enamored with just the workplace, totally enamored with just culture care, and they give up on being connected with the church. And so what happens within the Christian faith, like in many places, is that the world becomes littered with false choices. And here I want to point to an insight from the business writers, Jim Collins and Scott Porras, who talk about the tyranny of the or and the genius of the and. Which is that when you live with a dichotomy, when actually you could live with a conjunction, you end up in a bad place. When you try and say it's either this or that, when actually it could be both and, it becomes a very dangerous thing to live with the dichotomy. And so enamored by our vision of doing good work within the world, we downplay the role of Bible reading or we downplay the role of evangelism or we downplay the importance of church attendance. That's for others or it's not even that important. Uh, What's important is living an authentic life in the workplace or in the academy. That's where the real action is at. And so what happens is that the Christian life becomes reduced to living our lives as nice, quiet individuals. And what we do is we flip the Dorothy Sayers quote. So now all that what God wants me to do is make good tables. All that God wants me to do is do a good job doesn't want me to do any of that specifically Christian community stuff yet this ignores how God displays his goodness and his glory through communities of his people and God is always gathering individual people to come together into worshipping and witnessing communities and if we avoid life together we mute the testimony of the gospel in our own lives and in offering the gospel to others because God's purpose has always been to gather a people who function as a contrast community, and the goal of that community is not to create a holy huddle that excludes others, but it is to create a community that then welcomes the sinner, it welcomes the lost, it welcomes the outsider, it welcomes the stranger. And So the idea that becoming a godly worker or a godly academic will mean decentering the Christian community from my life. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense biblically or theologically or even practically. We are to live our lives as faithful individuals but always with vital connections to Christian communities because Christian communities are a core part of how God witnesses to the goodness of the gospel in the world. And so do not neglect meeting because you're putting it under the banner of I'm serving God in my own way. Uh, there is a tendency, and this is very apparent actually in my field where it's kind of theological and biblical academics, that academics can be too smart for their own good. Uh, if Sometimes I want to say to people, if you think you have reasons for not liking the church, I have more. You know that Paul does that rhetoric, you know, you think, I've got re- you think you've got reasons to boast, I have more working in the fields I have in terms of theology and and biblical studies I have plenty of reasons to dislike the church my wife is a children's pastor for a church I've worked for a church I know plenty of reasons but I am vitally connected to my church because God intends to display his glory not only through my individual actions but through being connected to a worshiping community which leads me then to the next point which is that faithful presence means faithful witness like I said the world can be littered with false choices, the tyranny of the or uh, needs to be replaced by the genius of the and. And so sometimes people will talk about, I just need to be faithfully present, but I don't need to faithfully witness. Um, You can do one or you can do the other. And so you get this kind of debate within Christian circles where you can either be about presence or you can be about evangelism, but you can't be about both. And so on the one hand, you have these people who say, if you tell people that their work matters to God, they'll focus on that and they'll drop evangelism. So don't tell people their work matters because I'm terrified they'll stop evangelizing. At the opposite extreme, you have people who say, no, 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 God wants faithful presence rather than loud witness. And so they sometimes use this quote, which is sourced to Francis of Assisi, which is preach the gospel at all times, if necessary, use words. I don't know if you've ever heard that quote. Preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. There's only two problems with that quote. Francis almost certainly didn't say it. And secondly, it's not true. It's impossible to share the gospel without actually eventually using words because the gospel is a media term. The the word refers to good news. It's an announcement. It ultimately has to be verbalized. You can promote and point people to the gospel. You can testify to it without words. But ultimately, it has to be a verbal uh, announcement. And so the people of God are always pictured as a witnessing community all throughout Scripture. We are a worshiping community. We are a witnessing community. At every point throughout Scripture, Israel was called to be a worshiping and witnessing community. The church is always called to be a worshipping and witnessing community because you can be faithfully present and be a faithful witness. Yes, we need wisdom to know how to speak, when to speak, what to speak, but the vocation of witness is not negotiable. We can do presence and we can do witness with our own style and in our own way, but our goal is not to hide the light of the gospel or to fob that off to the professionals. But that then leads me to another point. Faithful presence or faithful witness as martyrdom. Now, this might seem quite concerning, so let me explain what I mean. It needs to be said that we live in a culture where lots of Christians feel like there's a rising threat. Whether or not there is a rising threat is debatable, but it needs to be said that there is a perception of rising threat and even the P word starts being used, the persecution word starts being used in various circumstances. And so, first of all, I need to define for you, what do we mean by the term martyr and martyrdom? Now, if you go to the Greek word that underlines uh, martyrdom or martyr, uh, which is martus, uh, that is something refers to a witness in general. It didn't refer to someone who died for their witness originally. It referred to someone who was a witness in court, someone who testified about something in some way, shape, or form. The reason the Greek martyrs became martyr is because Christian witness often involved suffering and death, and therefore martyr came to be a word that was associated with suffering unto death because of witness. And so that's what you see in a book like Revelation. You see the martyrs under the altar in Revelation chapter 6. Those who have been faithful in their testimony to Jesus are the martyrs because to testify to Jesus puts them under the threat of their life. So too in Revelation 12, uh, those who are faithful disciples are those who loved not their lives so as to shrink from death. And so you do have this language of martyrdom, but the primary idea of martyrdom is witness. Nevertheless, it needs to be said within the scriptures that we who follow the slaughtered lamb to give the imagery of the book of Revelation are defined by a willingness to sacrifice our life for the good of others. Note, not just to sacrifice our life. No, 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 we're not sacrificing it for ourselves and our selfishness. We're not sacrificing it to hurt people. We, like the slaughtered lamb, are defined by the willingness to sacrifice our life for the good of others. And so it needs to be said that all throughout Christian history, Christians have experienced varying amounts of hostility for their faithfulness to Jesus or living for Jesus. And so there is, it has to be said, a measure of suffering that often accompanies being a Christian. Now it's not always our situation. And we can ask the question, are we living at present in a context of persecution? And my general comment would be that while some of us might be, a lot of us are not. We are experiencing within the culture and perhaps within academia moments of hostility, but hostility should not always be labeled persecution. And we should not seek it out. Not all hostility is persecution but nor does it do us any good to ignore the hostility. A basic reading of the New Testament tells us it's hard to avoid the conclusion that suffering for living as a Christian is a regular part of Christian experience. And by suffering, I'm not talking about when you get an autoimmune disease or or, or when you have a bereavement within your family, even though that is suffering. I'm talking about suffering for being a Christian appears to be a regular expectation of the New Testament. And here we are guided again by 1 Peter, because in 1 Peter, he says, this is what happened to Jesus, and so it is an example for you. So 1 Peter 2, verses 21 to 25, to this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have been returned, now you have returned, sorry, to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Now, this, my friends, is a crucial text because it defines the fact that becoming a Christian is not just about applauding the work of Christ on the cross, but also in some sense imitating it. Not just applauding, but also imitating. That's why Peter, later in that epistle, talks about the fact, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you. Do not be surprised. This is what it means to follow the way of Christ. Nevertheless, it's important to unpack here what is being said. The idea is not that Christians want to suffer, nor is it that Christians seek to be offensive. Quite the opposite. Christians are regularly enjoined to live peaceful and quiet lives, to make every effort to live at peace with all people. And here I want to point you to the words of a friend of mine, the CEO of Open Doors, which is a persecution-serving organisation, a guy called Mike Gore, who recently wrote this to Western Christians. He said, over the last two to three years, I've watched as many friends make needlessly inflammatory statements and provocative claims with muddy viewpoints that understandably press on the nerves of others. The sad thing is that in these moments, these same people put their hands up and claim they're experiencing a form of Christian persecution because of their faith. If people chase persecution over Jesus, then it's not faith-based persecution It's destructive narcissism. Here's the difference with the persecuted church. Their focus is to live by and live out their love for Jesus within the community, and it's this fact that invokes persecution. Pursue the way of Jesus and leave the results to the sovereignty of God. In 1 Peter and even in the book of Revelation, Christians suffer as Christians when... I would rather suffer than uh, compromise my my faith in Christ. I would rather suffer than give up on God and his promises. And I would rather suffer than have people not hear the gospel. Uh, There is a vital link there, which is that it is always driven by love for God and love for others. And when our suffering is not driven by love for God and love for others, it becomes self-focused narcissism. Because there's a vital link actually between our suffering and our proclamation of the gospel. In 1 Peter it talks about the fact of suffering for doing good and the way that that connects with gospel proclamation. In 1 Peter chapter 3 verses 14 and 15, uh, sorry verses 14 to 17 it says, but even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear, do not be frightened Here is the classic apologetics verse, if ever there was an apologetics verse. Here is the verse we use to encourage us to learn the arguments to respond to people's questions. I, I want to point out this fact that was first pointed out to me by John Dixon you get asked questions when your life demands answers. Because here's what I notice I've spent my life studying answers to all the questions, but I'm not always being asked questions. Because I'm not necessarily living the kind of life that demands answers. And that's the kicker. In a culture that is hostile to Jesus, do you know what gets people asking questions? It's when you give where others take. It's where you practice hospitality when others practice retaliation. It happens when you love your enemies, when you turn the other cheek, when you forgive instead of take revenge. It happens when you refuse to use lies in order to advantage yourself. It's when you embrace the way of Jesus, which includes suffering for doing good, It includes practising the Sermon on the Mount in such the way that it goes, why would you live by such a radically different way? And that's the kind of life that demands answers, good answers. And so I want to encourage you as I draw this to a close that the call of the academic and the call of the postgrad is so special because you are called to cultivate this world for the glory of God and you have enormous influence and you must bring your gifts to the workplace and you must bring your gifts to the culture because we need you and God has raised you up for that purpose and has given you those gifts in order that you would leave a legacy. But, and this is what I used to say to artists as well, you are not a special group of human beings who are somehow separate The normal uh, practices of discipleship that everybody else needs to submit themselves to. You too, as academics and postgrads, are called to be a contrast community. You too are called to the task of witnessing and promoting the gospel, even as you are faithfully present as an academic. And you too are called to practice sacrificial love towards a lost and hostile world. And as you practice the way of Jesus, faithfully present in academia. I do not know exactly what the results will be in worldly terms, but I know if you faithfully practice and witness to Jesus in academia, you will bring glory to God and you will be loving others in a Christ-like manner. And I commend that to you as something for you to pursue for the remainder of your life. Thanks.